Shalom. This is Gary Duroshinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. How do we prepare? Well, we're to be prepared by waiting for him. Well, how do we wait for him? We wait for him by being vigilant in our service to him. That's how we wait for him. We serve him in a variety of ways in this respect. We pray for one another. That's a form of service. We pray for our world. We pray for our leaders. The scripture tells us, first and foremost, we are to pray for those that are in political leadership in our nations. We also need to be praying for our pastors throughout our nation as they are speaking to hundreds of millions of people Uh, every week, if not more frequently, about what the scriptures teach regarding his son and regarding God's plan for the future. So we need to be in prayer. We need to be supportive. We need to be lifting one another up. We need to be encouraging other because the days are indeed evil. Now, in Hebrews chapter 3, we speak to some degree on on this matter. In chapter 3, we're beginning at verse 7. In which we read, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Messiah, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Now, this is a very powerful section right at the very front end of the book of Hebrews. The writer has been telling us of the superiority of Messiah. 
superior in his, is his message, and he is that message, superior to the prophets, superior to the angels, superior to Moses. In fact, if you look at chapter 3, that's what he, ent- he began with. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share, share in a heavenly calling, consider Yeshua, the apostle and high priest, who was faithful to him who appointed him just as Moses. But for Yeshua has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. And so he's telling us that in light of, look at verse 7 now, therefore, in light of the fact that Yeshua is superior to Moses and to all those who preceded in in this writer's writing before Moses, the prophets and angels, He's superior to the prophets, the angels, and now Moses. Therefore, he says, listen as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. What's really interesting here is this phrase, if you hear his voice, he says, if you hear his voice, the question is, whose voice is the writer talking about? He's quoting from an extended section in the book of Psalms. It's Psalm 95. We're going to turn there in a moment. In that section, we read the very same words. Today, if you hear his voice, in Psalm 95, it's the voice of God. But here in the book of Hebrews, it's the voice of Yeshua. He's superior to Moses, superior to the prophets, superior to the angels. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the provocation. Here's another interesting thing. The word translated in my translation as rebellion is the Greek word that means provocation. It comes up only three times in all the New Testament. All three times are right here in this section. This idea of provoking God. We would think, how can anyone provoke God? But we find that his own people whom he had chosen had provoked him, had incensed him, is the word, had intensified his anger and his wrath. And now he's saying, if that happened under the time of Moses, how much more so might it happen in our day and age, because it, they provoked God's anger because they didn't listen to Moses, how much more so will they provoke God's anger if we don't listen to the one who is superior to Moses? Does that make sense? That's what the writer's concerned about. He does not want us to take for granted the grace and mercy of God. It can be spurned and it can be neglected and it can be rejected and it can result or an attitude as such can result in such a manner that the judgment of God can fall with great devastation. Here he quotes Psalm 95. So turn with me to Psalm 95 to see how this writer is utilizing it. He, he utilizes it like the rabbis do of old. He gives us a long extended section in the Midrash of the rabbis. You find this oftentimes is the case, even though there may be only one small section that the rabbi is concerned with. This writer does similar things to what the rabbinic writers do in the first, second centuries of the common era. But look at Psalm 95. It's a powerful psalm, and he quotes the second part of it. But I want us to start from the beginning. If you look at verse 1, he says, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. 
Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us bow, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Isn't that a marvelous passage? That's a call to worship. It is such a marvelous passage that the Siddur, the Jewish prayer book, in its call to worship every Shabbat begins with the reading of Psalm 95. And it's not just the Siddur of the Jewish people, but if you ever read through the Book of Common Prayer, the Anglican work of uh, a prayer book, it too begins with Psalm 95 as a call to worship. And you would think, well, that's, uh, it would conclude with a statement of praise and adoration, but it doesn't. Look where the psalmist then turns in verse 8. He says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test, put me to the proof, and though they had seen my work for 40 years, I loathed. These are very stern, dire words, aren't they? For 40 years, he says, I loathed that generation and said, they are people who go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways, therefore I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Wow, it's like, you know, two sides of a coin. It's like two opposites. Come and worship. He's our shepherd. And yet at the same time, but be cautious of this. There was a time in our history when our people caused God to loathe us. And so while it's true, we must come before the Lord and worship him, we must worship him with the right kind of heart. And that's what the second part of this psalm is about, that we would worship him with a heart that is pure, a heart that is right before God, a heart of faith, not of unbelief. That's what the psalmist is concerned about that our attitude toward God would be a genuine love for him because of who he is. So here's the question that this whole section raises. What is the worst kind of sin a person can commit? I know we oftentimes don't think of that because we know the scripture says that our sin separates us from God, right? We don't believe in, you know, a hierarchy of sinfulness, As James says, if we keep all the law but miss one commandment, we're guilty of it all. But there is a sense in which there is a hierarchy of sinfulness, although we don't like to think of it that way. In other words, we all think of ourselves as equally sinners because we've all sinned in one form or another, and we are all equally alienated from God. But make no mistake, not all sins are equally sinful. They're all equally alienatable. You know, all sin will alienate us from God, but not all sins are equal. If they were, the Mosaic law would not have different kinds of punishment for different kinds of sin. The reason why there are different kinds of punishment is because there are different kinds of sin. 
And the writer here is telling us the worst sin of all. So as you go through a category of sinfulness, you know, we might think of all kinds of things as being the most terrible thing. But the most terrible sin of all is the sin of unbelief. That's what he's talking about here. All other sins really cascade down from unbelief. Well, think about it. In you, when you look at the garden, the situation of Adam and Eve in the garden, how bad a sin was it to simply eat from the fruit of a tree that you were told not to eat from? You didn't hurt anybody else. You know, we always think we're not a bad sinners because I didn't hurt anyone. You know, I may have hurt myself, but actually they hurt a lot of people, didn't they? We are hurt this day because of what they did. So that dawn, but just put that aside for a moment, right? It was just them eating at that particular moment. But the reason they ate was because of a great sin, the sin of unbelief of the word of God. He said, the day that you eat dying, you will die. They did not believe it. And so they did not embrace that as true. And the result is what it is. In fact, check this out. In John chapter 16, when Yeshua talks about his coming death, and then he tells them, this is when he's with them at Passover, he tells them about the coming of the Spirit of God. He says to them in John chapter 16, he says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. I'm looking at verse 7. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, the parakletos, the one called alongside to help, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now catch this, verse 8. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin. Now just close the Bible for a moment. He's going to convict the world concerning sin. And then he'll go on to explain why he will convict the world of sin. And we might say, well, because they are selfish or because they are self-focused or because they are greedy or whatever it is. But look what Yeshua says. He says, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Verse 9, concerning sin. Why? Because they do not believe in me. You know. So what is the greatest sin one can commit? Unbelief, right? Yeshua said when the Spirit of God comes, he's going to convict the world of sin. What sin? Murder? Anarchy? Rebelliousness? No, the sin of unbelief that they did not believe in me. And that reminds me, at one point, Yeshua is asked the question, what must I do to please God? And Yeshua responds, believe on the one whom he has sent. So what is the critical sin? The critical sin, the worst sin a person can commit is the sin of unbelief of God. And so what is the psalmist talking about? They did not believe God when he told them they could go in and capture the land. And as a result, the spies come back. This is Numbers chapters 13 and 14. When the spies come back, they say, indeed, it is a land as God described. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. That means it's a lot of green, a lot of green hills that cows are grazing in, and it's filled with honey, a lot of flowers. This is a beautiful land that is lush and green and flowering and providing the fruit for all of our needs. But they said there are also giants in the land. 
He said there were also fortified cities in the land. And they said that it will be impossible to take. Now keep this in mind. The Israelites had just come out of Egypt where they saw the plagues that God wrought upon the Egyptians. They just saw the Lord part the Red Sea not too long before. They had seen the Lord provide water that was in a bitter pool, being made sweet and digestible. They saw the Lord provide manna each and every day and a double portion on Fridays. They saw the Lord provide quail. They saw the Lord guide them by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. They saw the Lord descend upon the mountain and they saw the thunder and the lightning and they felt the quaking and they saw the tablets and they saw the glory of God shining forth from Moses' face and they saw the Lord enable the army. What kind of army did Israel have coming out of Egypt? But they saw their army defeat the Amalekites as long as Moses' hands were held high. Why would they doubt God's ability now, having brought them to the brink of the land he promised them from the beginning? Why would they doubt that he could not enable them to take the land, no matter who was on it? It was the sin of unbelief. But now the writer is very clear in the book of Hebrews. As a Jewish commentator, he also takes liberty with the text, which is typical of what many rabbis do. Let me show you a liberty he takes with the text. Look at Hebrews chapter 3. In my translation, it says in verse 9, Oh, excuse me, verse 10. Therefore, everybody see this? Therefore, I was provoked with that generation. That's what my translation says. That's what the Hebrew says. So when you read it, it's a, it sounds like he was, what was the word? I was provoked with that generation in the wilderness, right? At the Exodus. But in the Greek... The writer changes the word from that to this. So it literally says, that was your translation says, Pam? It literally says that he, he, let me get it again. Therefore, I was provoked with this generation. Now that word this enables us to sort of apply the verse in two directions. On the one hand, if he said that generation, it's limited to the Exodus generation, the people that came out of Egypt. But by saying this generation, he now has opened the door, not only in its application to the people in the time of the Exodus, but the people to whom he is writing right now. Do not become like them and thus provoke God in our day and age as they did in their day and age. Does that make sense? And by changing it to this, it also becomes more relevant to you and I today, that the Lord would not be provoked by us and whatever era reads this text, simply by changing the word from that to this. But make no mistake, 
Three times he uses the word provoked. And when he uses it, in, and then when he makes this reference, take a look at this in verse 13. He says, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, this is also interesting. In the Greek, it actually says something a little different, but it's significant. He doesn't just say the deceitfulness of sin. He says the deceitfulness of the sin. He's talking about the sin of unbelief that can lead to what he makes reference to, a falling away. Now, this word falling away is interesting, too, because the Greek word to fall away is where we get the word apostatize from. It's really a combining of two Greek words. One is histemi, which is the word to stand, and the, the other word is apo, and that's where we get the word like apostasy, but histemi to stand, and apo means a far away. So it means to stand far away from. So an apostate is one who stands far away from what is taught or stated. It's a falling away. Now, get this. This is also interesting from the Greek passage. It isn't a falling away that is non-deliberate. It's a deliberate walking away from the words that we have heard. Remember what he said at the beginning. Therefore, if the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. The hardening of the heart is an action we do by unbelief and thereby doubting God that leads to disobedience. So then when we think of what's the worst sin, the worst sins we think of are acts of disobedience that are fueled by the sin of unbelief. It's kind of an interesting way that the writer thinks of it. But now here's the neat thing the writer does. He says, don't harden your heart like our people did in the wilderness and therefore were judged for 40 years. Remember, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years because when the people came back, the spies came back with a negative report, they embraced that report. They didn't do anything by an act of disobedience. They simply disbelieved the word of God. As a consequence, what they disobeyed was going in and taking the land. But when you read Numbers 13 and 14, what you will find is that this sin was not the only sin they committed. And it was not the only sin of unbelief. This sin was the 10th sin that is chronicled in the wandering out from Egypt to the border of the promised land. He mentions that, Moses mentions that in Numbers chapter 13. Ten times God says to Moses, they provoked me. And if you'd get that, Eleanor, that'd be good. Ten times they provoked the Lord. The first time, and this is what's made reference to both in Hebrews chapter 3 and Exodus 17. The first time was when they came out of Egypt and they complained about water. And God tells them to strike the rock. He strikes the rock and fresh water comes out. When the water comes out, God now says to the people of Israel, this is now the waters of Meribah and Maasah, quarreling and rebelling. Because in their complaint, 
They were disbelieving God that he would take care of them. And they complained that they didn't have water. God provides them with water, but they still were not appreciative of what God had provided. And therefore, the name of that place is called quarreling and rebellion. From that point to the brink of the promised land, 10 moments of provocation. And now when we get to the border of the promised land, the provocation is highlighted. And the provocation is sort of, this is the last straw, the point of no return. And now because of their failure to go into the land, God says the generation that came out of Egypt will not enter the promised land. Their children will, the next generation will, but this generation will will not enter the promised land. The writer is telling his readers, keep this in mind, these are all these little vignettes that come through here. 40 years has passed, almost 40 years has passed since the death of Messiah. Right, 30 he dies, 70 AD is 40 years. That's when the judgment will hit with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. So nearly 40 years, much like the 40-year wandering in the wilderness. And the writer is saying, don't be like that generation that was a generation of unbelief that resulted in the judgment of God. Be a generation of faith. Listen to the words of Messiah. Leave Jerusalem when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies and flee to the mountains and don't worry about what your people might say of you as a result. Everyone see that? Now we must ask the question of ourselves. Well, what about ourselves? How does this apply to you and me today? And let me just point out two things as I close. Look at this word today. It appears four times in this section. Look at it with me. In chapter 3, verse 7, today, if you hear his voice. He says again, if you look at chapter 3, verse 13, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. Look at verse 15. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Look at chapter 4 in verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, over and over again, he keeps harping on, today is the day of responsiveness to God. Don't wait till tomorrow for his voice is being heard today. So what is the antidote to unbelief? That's the question. If that's the greatest sin, what is the antidote to it? The antidote is abandon it. and believe. People say, you can't. No, you can believe. Belief is a choice you make. It's not something that captures you. It's something that you exercise. You believe. You decide, I will no longer not believe. And so the challenge is to come to that point where we say, you know what? I'm believing. And we allow God now to take us through the journey to the promised land as a people of faith and not a people of unbelief. And so how is belief received? Paul tells us belief comes by hearing and hearing of the word of God. What did the writer say? Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, 
Today, if you hear his voice, God's voice is heard through his word. And when we hear his word, that's where faith can begin to germinate. We believe, but what do we believe in? We believe his word. In the time of the Exodus, he told them, take the land. Moses hasn't written it yet. But they heard his voice through Moses, their leader, take the land. But they ignored his voice. Today, his voice is heard in his word. As we read his word, as we get more of his word in us, the deeper our faith and belief can become. And so that's why he says, while it is today, exhort one another. You know what this word exhort is? In the Greek, it's the same word for the Spirit of God. Parakletos. One called alongside. Exhortation is not a demanding of somebody. It's not a call to somebody. It's a coming alongside someone in aid and in help. Just as the Holy Spirit comes alongside to guide and direct. So exhortation is a matter of coming alongside and encouraging one another while it is today to trust God, to believe him. And isn't it true that it is easier to trust God in community than it is in isolation? How often is it that when things go bad, our first inclination is, I'm not going to service this morning, I'm not in a good mood, I don't feel well, and what happens? Our faith is diminished. We tend to doubt God more. We tend to replay the hurt or the victimization or the bad decision we have made over and over and over again. It's in community that we hear the words of others that say, hey, God is on your side. He loves you. He forgives you. He will bring you in to where you need to go. He will heal you. He'll take care of this. We're here with you. That's why he says, exhort, build up, come alongside one another while it is still today while we can have faith. Now, let me just share one last thing in closing. When I thought about this issue of faith, it made me think of what we read about the birth of John the Immerser, the Baptist, and Yeshua's birth. So I want you to turn with me, and I want you to look at this just very quickly as we conclude. Luke chapter 1 records this for us. And in Luke chapter 1, an angel appears to Zechariah. He's a priest. He's officiating in the temple. As he's officiating in the temple, he's lighting the altar of incense, which is a symbol of the prayers of Israel as they ascend up to God. As he's lighting the altar of incense, he's praying, but he's praying not only about God in his glory, but he's asking God for a personal request. We don't hear him say those words because he's praying silently. But we know he's praying it because the angel comes to answer his prayer. He's praying that his wife, Elizabeth, would bear a child, would have a son. The angel appears at the right side of the altar, near the altar of incense, and says, Your prayers have been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will have a son. And he says this about him. He says, he will be great. Do you know that's the very same words Gabriel will then say to Mary? That she has conceived the Holy Spirit, will give birth to the Son of God, and he will be great. He will be the Son of the Most High God. I just think that's so cool to have the same description that Messiah is given, right? 
John has said he will be great. But the thing that strikes me is how Zechariah responds. He responds by saying, look at verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. So you would think Gabriel would answer and say, well, this this is how. But look what he does. He says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. It's like the writer to the Hebrews. Listen to the word of the Holy Spirit. Gabriel's saying, God is speaking to you. And he's giving his message to you. And he says, I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent, unable to speak. Oh, my goodness. That's the judgment of God, right? He's telling him, God just spoke to you told you an answer to your prayer. I'm an angel. I mean, you know that I'm an angel. And here I am in your presence. And he says, how, how am I to know this? That is a manifestation of what? Unbelief. Unbelief. The result is, and God spoke. When you hear God's word, respond. He heard his word. He responds, how do I know this is so? I don't believe this. And the angel says, well, those are hard words. Hey, listen, I didn't ask for this job, you know? I stand in the presence of God, so I don't have a choice. But if I had a choice, I wouldn't waste my time with you, you know? That's sort of, that's sort of how I'm hearing this, right? Especially if he was from Jersey. Definitely like that. So he says, you know, I stand in the presence of God. I got, there's a lot of things I could be doing. But God has called me here. This is God's word to you. Okay, fine. You want to know how? I'm telling you how. You're not going to be able to speak. Now, consider that in light of Mary. Same angel, similar message, a little different, but similar. And look what Mary says. Miriam, or Mary says, Mary said, behold, um, oh, no, she says, oh, look at verse 34. Mary says to the angel, how will this be? Since I am a virgin. Isn't that interesting? One says, how do I know? And the other one is, how will it be done? You know, so Mary's saying, I got it. It's happening. Can you tell me how? And he tells her. The Holy Spirit's going to make this happen. John says, are you, is this for real? And he says, oh yeah, wait, you know. Now get this. When John finally, when John is born... And Zechariah is uh, informed that, you know, he's got a son, and he's going to name him. Check this out. It says in verse, um, in verse 61, oh, in verse, in verse, okay, verse 59, on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, talking about John, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. Good for his mother, right? That's what the angel said. You call him John. And they said to her, but none of your relatives is called by this name. And now get this. They made signs to his father. That's Zechariah, right? Now, why are they making signs to him? Why don't they just talk to him? Because he can't hear, right? He's deaf. He's deaf. I mean, they're making signs to him. I mean, I must have read this a thousand times. It never really dawned on me. Why don't they just say, so John, what do you want to, uh, 
What do you want to call I mean, Zechariah, what do you want to call him? Because it says they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted to be called, and he asked him for a writing tablet. That makes sense. He can't speak, so he writes the name John. But why didn't they just say to him? He must have been deaf, too. Now, this is the thought. The moment he writes, which is the exhibition of faith, right? Now he can speak. But this is the thought that occurred to me. And I may get this backwards, but think about this. When a person doesn't believe, he neither can hear God nor speak to others. You know? If you don't have a relationship with God, you're of no use. You're of no use to God because you can't hear him. You're of no use to others because you don't really have anything you can really do for them. I mean, yeah, we can be kind-hearted to one another in the human sense of the word, but when it comes time, as in the case of Stella, when it comes our day, that moment of life, remember that imagery that uh, Francis Chan had of that rope that goes off the stage into oblivion? We focus, and the red tape that's on this part of that rope that strings through, you know, that's our whole existence. It's eternal. We focus so much on this little part of red tape, and we think, well, if we're good here, if we're kind here, that's enough. But what the scripture is telling us, it's not enough. That's a small part of our life when there's a whole stream of life that is endless. And so when we are of When we are deaf to God, and as a consequence, incapable of speaking life to others, what goodness we do exhibit is only this significant. It's not this significant, because it will have no ramifications for eternity. And so the writer is very urgent. Today, 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 if you hear his voice, don't be like our people in the wilderness who heard his voice but disbelieved it. Don't be like, Je- like Zechariah, the father of John, who heard his voice but disbelieved it. Be like Joshua and Caleb, who when they came back, they said, all of that is true. And the worship team can come on up. All of that is true. But what's most important, God will bring the deliverance and the victory. Be like Joshua and Caleb who do enter the promised land. Not even Moses makes the promised land. But those of great faith, doesn't have to be great. Those of faith do. Don't be like Zechariah. Be like Miriam. Okay, I, I, I believe you, Lord. I just don't know how it will be. And when we do that, God is most pleased. And so how does he end in Hebrews chapter 3? He ends by saying, So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. But with belief... We can enter, and we can receive all that God has for us. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers. 
And if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.